0: Christ is risen, amen. The Christian faith is built on the reality of the resurrection. As Christians, we are the people of the resurrection. This is evident in our creeds, in the songs that we sing, and even in the fact that we meet on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. When we gather every week on Sunday morning, we're commemorating the resurrection as believers have done for almost 2,000 years. In addition, most Christians celebrate the Easter holiday as an additional special day of remembering the resurrection, and I believe that is a good thing. It's important to remember the resurrection, but more than that, to think often and carefully about its significance. This is because as believers, we understand that the resurrection is more than just a mere historical event although it is that, but it is also a current and future reality. And our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in this chapter, Paul reminds the believers at Corinth of the gospel that he preached to them, and which they believed in. And in the first 11 verses, he declares the content of the gospel to be of first and utmost importance. And in those verses, he declares that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that there were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And not just one or two, but Paul lists Cephas, also known as Peter. And then another time, he appears to the Twelve. Then at one time, he appears to 500 brothers at once. Also to James, the Lord's half-brother, and all of the apostles at another time, and finally to Paul himself on the road to Damascus. But in verse 12, however, Paul comes to a point of controversy. Let's look at the text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So it seems that some at the church in the church at Corinth were denying the resurrection of the dead. Now Paul has already said in, in verse eleven of this chapter that they believed the gospel message, which included the resurrection, so it's not really clear. The issue here, if they're making an exception for Christ, that is, they believe that He was raised but that believers will not be, or if perhaps they had come to doubt that Christ physically rose from the dead and instead believed that the resurrection was something spiritual only. Either way, Paul makes explicit in this chapter that the bodily resurrection of Christ is inseparably linked to the bodily resurrection of believers and that to deny it destroys the gospel message. And so in verses 12 to 23, which is our text for this morning, Paul outlines three things. First of all, the necessity of the resurrection. Second, the certainty of the resurrection. And then finally, the results of the resurrection. So it is my prayer this morning that the truth of God's word will cause us to look at the resurrection of Christ on this Easter Sunday with fresh eyes and that we would consider carefully its implications in our lives. Believers, I hope today as we go to our homes or as we go from here to our Easter celebrations this afternoon that you will celebrate the resurrection not just as a historical event but as a present and future reality in your life. So in correcting the misunderstanding of the Corinthian believers, Paul begins with the necessity of the resurrection. See, the resurrection is essential to the message and the hope of the gospel. And our text today outlines four ways in which the resurrection is necessary to the Christian faith. First of all, Paul tells us in this text that it is the foundation of the gospel message. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul says, without the resurrection, our preaching is vain, it's empty. The word translated as preaching here refers to a proclamation. It's the act of making something known. You see, biblical preaching is more than just standing behind a pulpit on Sunday or standing in front of a crowd of people and making a speech. Biblical preaching has to do with the content of what we proclaim. And this is not limited only to the pastor's sermon on Sunday morning, but without the resurrection, the entire Christian message is empty. Because without the resurrection, the gospel itself is empty. If there is no resurrection, then there is no good news. And if there is no good news, then what is there for us to proclaim? Moralism? Try to be a good person. You're not. You'll fail. Or we could offer words of wisdom. Whose words? Whose wisdom? Yours? mine. Without any good news of the gospel, all that we have to give is nothing more than the empty platitudes that are offered by every false religion, and these don't provide any solution to the problem of sin and death, and they offer no hope to be reconciled with God. And Not only would our message be without hope, but if there is no resurrection, Paul said, then we are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ was not raised, then not only is our message empty, but we would also be lying by proclaiming a message of hope and forgiveness. And this would undermine the reliability of scriptures, for the apostles themselves would be false witnesses because they testified to the truth of the resurrection. Secondly, the resurrection is necessary as the foundation of saving faith. And the last half of verse 14, which we read, makes clear that without the resurrection, your faith is vain. And notice how closely Paul links in that verse preaching with faith. I think the two are tied together more closely than we might sometimes realize. Because you see, we proclaim or preach what we believe, and we believed because we first heard someone preach. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 17, you can turn there if you want, or I'll just read it to you. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith and preaching, Paul tells us, are closely linked with one leading to the other. So if our preaching is vain, then our faith is vain. An empty preaching results from and leads to an empty faith. After all, if our message is empty, then what is there to believe in? And if we don't really believe in anything, then why preach? Sadly, there is much empty preaching taking place in many places, many pulpits across the land today. And I'm not talking about places that put less emphasis than we do on expositional preaching. No, I'm talking about sermons that are empty of the gospel proclamation. Such sermons, when well crafted and expertly delivered, will draw crowds, but they have no ability to change the hearts of men apart from the power of the gospel. And preaching that is not grounded in the truth of the resurrection is void of resurrection power. Thirdly, the resurrection is the foundation of our forgiveness. In verse 17, Paul moves from preaching in faith to forgiveness. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The reality of Christ's resurrection is directly linked to the forgiveness of sin. Now down through history and even today, some have taught the idea of a spiritual resurrection. We believe in a spiritual resurrection, but what they mean by that is they reject the doctrine of a bodily resurrection as too fantastic and too miraculous, and they believe instead that the resurrection of Christ was merely spiritual and that his physical body remained in the grave. But the problem with that is is it is not possible to separate the physical bodily death of Christ on the cross from a physical bodily resurrection. We cannot hold on to the salvific work of the cross if we abandon the resurrection of the body because a cross without the resurrection saves no one. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 4 when he's explaining how Abraham was justified by faith. And in Romans 4.23 he says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And notice the two parallel phrases at the end there. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who kept the law perfectly, never once breaking a single command, He went to the cross taking our sins upon Himself and suffering the wrath of God in our place, He was delivered up for our trespasses. However, if Christ was not raised, it would have shown that He did not actually conquer sin and death, but rather that sin and death were victorious over Him. If He had remained under the power of death, which is the penalty of sin, then it would have proven Him to be condemned by God rather than justified. And so understanding that then, we realize that the resurrection was God's vindication of Christ's atoning work on the cross. By raising him from the dead, God was publicly declaring that Jesus had succeeded in his task. His atoning sacrifice was accepted. He had ransomed a people for God. The power of sin was broken and death as the wage for sin had no hold on him. His death Accomplished the salvation for his people. And that is what it means when Paul says he was raised for our justification. And fourthly, the resurrection is the foundation of our hope. Look at verse 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. You see, those who have fallen asleep is a metaphor often used in Scripture to refer to the death of believers. And by its very imagery, it points to the hope of a resurrection because those who sleep will awaken again. And although there were many witnesses who had seen the resurrected Christ still alive at the time that Paul is writing this letter, In verse 6, he tells us that some had fallen asleep. And so Paul makes the point here that if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope for the dead. If Christ is not raised, then there's no victory over sin or death, and the believers who have died are lost in their sins with no hope of justification. Instead, they have perished just like unbelievers. If this were the case... Paul concludes by saying, these believers would be most pitiful. What did they suffer persecution for? What did they give up everything for? Consider the Apostle Paul and just in his life. What did he give up his prestigious place and his future among the Pharisees for? Why cast aside all of those great achievements that he listed as rubbish? Why say, for me to live is Christ'?" And to die is gain. Why endure hunger and beatings, prison and shipwreck? Because a hope in a Christ that did not rise from the dead is no hope at all. But in verse 20, Paul moves from the necessity of the resurrection to the certainty of the resurrection. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised From the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so, in that one phrase that Paul puts there in verse 20, all of the implications of what he said in verses 12 through 18 are countered by that one declaration: Christ is risen. Paul is absolutely certain of the resurrection, and he wants the believers at Corinth to be just as certain as he is. You see, the resurrection was not secretive. It was not a speculative thing. It was a historical, verifiable fact. Just consider this morning a few of the evidences that Paul has already mentioned just in the opening verses of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. First, Christ's resurrection was a public event. It was not kept secret was not done in a corner somewhere, but it was public knowledge, so much so that the religious leaders had to bribe false witnesses to try to cover up the fact that the tomb was empty and his body was gone. Second Paul's mentioned that it was grounded in eyewitness testimony. And we don't mean that just one or two people thought they saw Jesus, but hundreds Paul said 500 at one time, in many locations, spread out over many days. And they didn't just see him across the way, through a crowd, across the square. Oh, I think that's Jesus. No scripture tells us that they walked with him, they talked with him, they ate with him, they touched him, they knew that he was alive. And finally, Paul said that God's word itself testifies to this truth when he says again two times, again and again in the introduction of the chapter, according to the Scriptures. You see, his death and his resurrection were not unexpected events. These weren't a surprise on the, on the grand stage of God's scheme of redemption, but rather they were foretold in Scripture long And so the resurrection of Christ is an absolute certainty. Paul has complete confidence in this so that he is willing to sacrifice all and trade everything. And he wants the believers in Corinth. And the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, wants you this morning to have that same certainty. Because Christ rose again, we have good news to preach. And a sure foundation for our faith. Because he lives, we can be assured that our sins are forgiven and that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will awaken. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, those who seem pitiful in the eyes of the world end up being the happiest and most blessed people of all. Through so the necessity of the resurrection, the certainty of the resurrection, and now on the other side of this affirmation about Christ's resurrection, Paul begins to expand on the results of the resurrection for all of those who are in Christ. And he does this by explaining the relationship between Adam, the first man, and Christ. Look at verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam, the first man, sinned, and that sin brought the consequence of death. And because Adam was a representative head of the human race, then all of those descended from him inherited both the guilt and the consequence. sin, Thus, in Adam all die. But likewise, Christ represented all of those who belong to him. And conceived by the Holy Spirit, Christ did not inherit Adam's guilt. He was without sin, and he remained so through his entire life, keeping the requirements of God's law perfectly. And having no sin of his own, his death paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And his resurrection proved that he was accepted by God as the perfect, sinless sacrifice. Death had no claim on him. And like Adam before him, Christ represented all of those who belonged to him. His perfect obedience and his sacrifice is accounted to them. And they will share in his resurrection. Thus, in Christ... All will be made alive. And this is the good news of the gospel. If you are in Christ, the wrath that your sin deserves was poured out on him. By raising him from the dead, God has demonstrated his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. And now because Christ is risen, you are delivered from the penalty your sin deserves, and my sin deserves. You see, from Adam, we not only received a sin nature, but we also inherited sin's consequence, death. However, Christ has defeated death for those who are His. Now, for now, we realize our bodies still suffer the effect of sin. We still age. We still get sick. And believers still die physically. And that is because these bodies that we're living in have not yet been made new. When you are born again, when you are regenerated, your spirit is raised to new life. But this body has not yet been transformed. It has not yet been raised. It is still under the effects of sin and the curse. And so it dies. But because of the resurrection, when Christ comes again, these bodies, if you're a believer, they will be transformed. They will be changed in a moment, and death's last area of dominion will finally be defeated. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ gives us hope for the world to come. In the second half of verse 20, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits was an agricultural term referred to the very first of the harvest, those first few things that you get from the garden, from the field. It's a foretaste. It's really a promise of a greater crop to come. You're excited not only because that first piece of fruit looks so good and tastes so good, but you're excited because of what it means. That all the work and all the labor that you put into growing that is coming to fruition. And now you have the first of that in your hand. The harvest has begun and you know what's coming after that. And under the Mosaic law, the Israelites were required to bring an offering of these first fruits to the Lord. And this was to be a reminder to them. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord. And now, here he says that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first fruits in that he was the first to rise from the dead, having conquered its power, and his resurrection points to the coming resurrection of believers. But because Christ lives, we have new spiritual life. Because Christ was resurrected, believers have an assurance of a bodily resurrection. of a life to come. And that is what I meant at the beginning when I said that Christ's resurrection was not only a historical event which happened in space and time, and it was, and it did. But if you're a believer, it is also a present and a future reality for you. If you are in Christ, you have been given spiritual life, but there is a day coming when you will have a new resurrected body that is free from sin and all of its effects. Look again at verse 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong. Because Jesus rose, we can have complete confidence that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised to new life, and that those who are still alive at His appearing will be transformed, changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and that both will be forever together with the Lord. So if we understand what Paul is explaining here in 1 Corinthians 15, then we recognize that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. This is why it is the ground, the foundation, so central to the Christian faith. This is why we are the people of the resurrection. It changes everything. And it is the ultimate dividing line of humanity. You see, nations rise, empires rise, they fall and pass away. Wealth comes, power and prestige come for a while, but eventually they fade. But the only distinction that matters eternally is whether you are in Christ or whether you are still in Adam. It all comes down to whether or not you accept or reject the resurrection of Jesus and its clear implication. That is, that God raised him up, vindicating him as the one and only Savior. So let me encourage you in closing this morning. If you are in Christ, then celebrate the resurrection today by resting in Him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, your faith is sure. Your sins are forgiven. And you do not need to have any fear of death. Church family, remember what Pastor Jeff said last week during communion. Your whole life is a testimony of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And finally... If you are not in Christ, if you are still in your sins, you are still in Adam, under condemnation for your sin, then repent and believe the gospel. That's it. There's nothing you can do. The work is finished. Christ has done all. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Turn to Him in faith and believe in what He has done, in His work, in His resurrection. Believe that He died on your behalf, that His death pays the penalty for your sin, the penalty of death that you deserved, and that by His resurrection you may have newness of life. Turn to Christ in faith and believe, because the work is finished. And if you come to Him by faith, then you too will have new life, and we'll share in the promise of the resurrection. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the promise of the resurrection, for the reality that it is, Lord. God, that it is the grounds of our faith, Lord, that because Jesus rose from the dead, Lord, our faith is certain. Because he rose from the dead, our sins are forgiven. Because he rose from the dead, we have good news to proclaim. There is a content to our message. We have a reason to go forth into all the world and to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. And I pray that you would be with the believers this morning as we go from this place, Lord. Help us to rest in you. Help us to take comfort and have confidence in what the resurrection means, and to meditate today upon what it means for us that Christ has accomplished this on our behalf. And for those in this place who are not believers this morning, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them to yourself, cause them to see their sin, cause them to see their need for a Savior, and most of all to recognize that there's nothing they can do on their own, but to turn to Christ and live. Thank you in Jesus' name.